Welcome to Reimagining Atlantis. My name's Tori, and I'll be your host. Hello, my friends, and welcome back again. I am elated that you're here today to listen to this episode. How do you like these trips going through my scatterbrain ideas? Last week, I became inspired, more than I have felt in a very long time. I'm reveling in this feeling of complete elation because I think I finally answered one of my major questions when it comes to the Atlantean War. Mainly, when did the Atlantean War happen? If you've been a long-term listener, you know that I favor a Bronze Age Atlantis theory, and not the most commonly accepted one of 9,000 years ago. If you'd like to know more, I have 40 episodes explaining why. But this episode only makes me feel like I've really solidified that answer, and I actually found it by accident. Not only does my brain have to agree with the science, but I think that as humans, we are emotional creatures. We do have what is called a gut instinct, and I try not to rely too much on emotionally based decisions, as they are inherently flawed, and I like to try and override it with logic whenever I can. However, I would like to categorize my feeling as a sense of calm. The knots I feel when something is wrong has never really led me astray in my life, but I need to comfort my ever-doubtful, logical mind. Studying Atlantis is difficult because there are important questions that pertain to where, when, and who. Perhaps I'm lucky and I found the when, and possibly the who. I would love to know your thoughts on it. So after last week's episode, and the single sentence that changed my life, I've not stopped obsessing over it. I've been thinking about how to formulate my words properly to communicate it. So, I'm going to follow the scientific method and conduct a study. The scientific method is composed of five parts. The first is to define a question and to investigate. Two would be make predictions. Three would be gather data. Four would be to analyze the data. And five is to draw conclusions. So let me sum up my thesis in a simple sentence. The Atlantean War happened during the reign of Kekropa, roughly 1550 BCE. Wow, that felt really bold and concrete. I don't like making very bold and concrete statements. Two adjectives I rarely use to describe any of my ideas. Only Siths deal in absolutes. I love to have some wiggle room, just in case I need to backpedal and I dislike eating crow. So this episode will go over my theory in a much more fluid explanation. I realize that most people can't keep track of my overexcited ADHD brain. Even the ones closest to me complain, usually the loudest. Anyway, I hope you enjoy my groundbreaking discovery, and I hope I was able to slow down and explain it properly. As always, My sources are linked in my episode description. 
This vast power, gathered into one, endeavored to subdue at a blow to our country, and yours, and the whole of the region within the straits. And then Solon, your country shone forth, in the excellence of her virtue and strength among all mankind. She was preeminent in courage and military skill, and was a leader of the Hellenes, and when the rest fell off from her, being compelled to stand alone, after having undergone the extremity of danger, she defeated and triumphed over the invaders, and preserved from slavery those who were not yet subjugated, and generously liberated all the rest of us who dwell within the pillars. But afterwards, there occurred violent earthquakes and floods, and in a single day and night of misfortune, all of your warlike men in a body sank into the earth, and the island of Atlantis, in like manner, disappeared into the depths of the sea, for which reason the sea in those parts is impassable and impenetrable, because there is a shoal of mud in the way, and this was caused by the subsidence of the island. And I've had an aching question. Why was it that it was only the warlike men who were destroyed? Why not the artisans, or the husbandmen, or the women? Well, to answer that question, it inadvertently answered the other bigger question. Plato actually talks about why only the warlike men were destroyed, and it's because during ancient ancient Athens, the time before the war, the area that is now called Athens was geographically different. Here's Plato explaining it. In the first place, the Acropolis, which means the highest point in the city, was not as it is now. The Acropolis extended to the Eridanus and the Elysius, and included the Phinx on one side and the, and the Lycabetus as a boundary on the opposite side to the Phinx. And all was well covered with soil and level at the top, except for one or two places. Where the Acropolis is now, there is a fountain which was choked by the earthquake and has only a few small streams which still exist in the vicinity. But in those days, the fountain gave an abundant supply of water for all and of suitable temperature in summer and when winter. This is how they dwelt, being the guardians of their own citizens and the leaders of the Hellenes, who were their willing followers. The warrior class dwelt by themselves around the temples of Athene and Hephaestus, at the summit of the hill outside of the Acropolis. Moreover, they had enclosed it with a single fence, like the garden of a single house. So knowing where the warlock men were geographically located in ancient ancient Athens, it helps us in understanding why they were specifically targeted. If everybody else that wasn't the warlike men was living on the highest points of the sea, but yet the warlike men were living in a hill outside of the highest point in the city, then when a single day of misfortune of earthquakes and floods washed away all of the area but those who lived on the Acropolis, that would explain why the warlike men were targeted. They weren't killed by the invading Atlantean army, but they were killed by the single day and night of misfortune. 
Well, that single day and night of misfortune is actually talked about extensively. Here's Plato. After the war, there occurred violent earthquakes and floods, and in a single day and night of misfortune, all of your warlike men, in a body, sank into the earth, and the island of Atlantis, in like manner, disappeared in the depths of the sea. And, of course, there's my favorite sentence that changed everything. For the fact is that a single day and night of excessive rain washed away the earth and lay bare the rock. Plato's talking about the Acropolis at this moment, so he's talking about what happened to the Acropolis because prior to he was saying the Acropolis isn't how it is now. And anybody who's ever seen any pictures of Athens know that the Acropolis just looks like this big boulder that they ended up putting the houses to Athena and Zeus and Erechtheus. All of them are on top of this big rock. But what Plato is saying is that single day and night of misfortune, of earthquakes and floods, it washed away all of that nice dirt that was around the Acropolis that extended to those four, I guess, rivers. So it was a lot bigger than just that single boulder. And it extended across the main part of Athens. And then the single day and night of misfortune happened and it washed away all the soft soil, leaving only the bare rock. So let me try that again. For the fact is that a single night of excessive rain washed away the earth and lay bare the rock. At the same time, there were earthquakes, and then occurred the extraordinary inundation, which was the third before the great destruction of Deucalion. The flood of Deucalion was the Greeks' ancient big flood. It was the great flood, and that's how they usually refer to it. I'm naming it the flood of Deucalion because they also mention it as the flood of Deucalion. But to understand that the flood of Deucalion was not the first, there was another bigger flood that happened prior to called the flood of Oges, and it was reported to be so bad that Athens did not have another ruler for 189 years. During which, between the flood of Oges and the flood of Deucalion, apparently there were three flash floods. Now what makes the flood of Deucalion different than this flash flood that Plato is talking about is that the flood of Deucalion actually lasted for nine days and nine nights. There were rains, there was a lot of flooding, Deucalion and Pyro were in this little chest, they had food, landed on a mountain, there was no more people, on and so on and forth. Well, obviously we knew that there are more people, but to them, I could see how there would be no people. So the great flood of Deucalion was, I guess, their Noah's flood. I'm more apt to believe that the flood of Noah would be the Greeks' flood of Oges than the flood of Deucalion. So Plato actually tells us in that one sentence that the war, the Atlantean war, happened right before the single night of excessive rain, the single night of misfortune. And this war happened the third inundation before the great destruction of the Deucalion flood.
Plato very specifically says that the inundation of water wasn't the worldwide flood, or as we've come to know it, the flood of Deucalion. It was just an episode where Attica had its third flash flood before the great destruction of Deucalion. So what happened during the reign of Cacropa that can corroborate the third inundation of water? Well, there is another very famous story about Cacropa that ends with Attica being covered with sea. And that's the contest between Athena and Poseidon on becoming the patron god of the land. If you want to learn more about that, I also have a podcast on it. What was it called? Or I guess an episode on that. Poseidon receiving for his lot the island of Atlantis. Cacropa, a son of the soil, with the body compounded of a man and serpent, was the first king of Attica and the country which is formerly called Acti. He named Cacropia. According to mythology, there was a person that was in rule before Cacropa. Now, I know I just got through telling you that the Ogean flood made it so that Attica didn't have a ruler for 189 years. According to some sources, right before Kikropa, there was another person ruling the land named Accius, I want to say. I guess I could look it up, but Kikropa married his daughter and that's how he was able to get control over the land that is now called Athens. But a lot of historians, even at that day, dismiss that king as actually being in rule. So we're going to go with Kikropa, which is what we have and which is what the Greeks believed was their primary king of Athens. So Cacropa, the son of the soil, with a body compounded of a man and serpent, was the first king of Attica. And the country, which was formerly called Acti, he named Cacropia after himself. So at the time that Cacropa was ruling the land that is now called Athens, it was called Cacropia. In his time, they say, the gods resolved to take possession of cities in which each of them should receive his own particular worship. So Poseidon was the first that came to Attica, and with a blow of his triton, on the middle of the Acropolis, he produced a sea, which they now call Erechtheus. After him, Athena, and having called on Cacropa to witness her act of taking possession, she planted an olive tree, which is still shown on the Pandrosium. But when the two strove for possession of the country, Zeus parted them and appointed arbitrators. Not, as some have affirmed, Cacropa and Cranius, nor yet Aristicon, but the twelve gods. And in accordance with their verdict, the country was adjudged to Athena because Cacropa bore witness that she had been the first to plant the olive. Athena, therefore, called the city Athens after herself and Poseidon, in a hot anger, flooded the Thracian plain and laid Attica under the sea. There's actually a little bit more to the story than what Apollodorus says. At that time, under the rule of Cacropa, both men and women were equal. They both took part in the war, which is why Athena is garbed in full battle armor, is because they saw no distinction between men and women when it came to war, to ruling, to voting. There's another part of the story that says that instead of the 12 gods to appoint who would be the patron god of the city that is now called Athens, it was all the women and the men of the town voted. They were like, all the women voted for Athena, 
all the men voted for Poseidon. Only there was one additional woman than there was man. So Athena became the patron goddess. Then Poseidon flashed the Thracian plain and laid Attica under the sea. So meanwhile, this is how I picture it happen. The guys look around and they're like, Ladies, I told you to vote for Poseidon. Look around. Look, the whole thing's flooded. Everything. We've lost everything. This is your fault. You've lost the right to vote. You obviously can't make good decisions. We told you that Poseidon was going to be mad and we should have voted for him. But no, you guys had to have your female patron goddess. So congratulations, you have her, but now we've lost everything and you no longer get the chance to vote. Pretty much how that story went. And that degradation continued on throughout all of Athens history. The illusion that we have gotten that all of Europe was believing that women should be subjugated under men is not true. Uh, there are plenty of cases where women were in places of power, could vote, had equal standing. And in fact, around this time, we had matrilineal lines, meaning that if you were royalty, it could only be passed down the women's line. But this changed everything because now all the guys are like, oh no, you guys did this. This was your fault. You lost the right to vote. Which kind of makes sense when I go more into Plato about what he was talking about. So keeping all of this in mind, it just sounds like we're talking about the same story. Another interesting point is that, quote, Cacropa is presented in the Attic Legends as author of the first elements of civilized life, such as marriage, the political division of Attica into 12 communities, and is also the introducer of a new mode of worship. Inasmuch, he abolished the bloody sacrifices, which had until then been offered to Zeus, and substituted cakes in their stead. Now, it should be noted that the city of Cacropia changed its name to Athens once Erechtheus was enrolled. So Erechtheus was the name of that spring that Poseidon had called forth with his triton when he slammed it down on the Acropolis. Well, he's also a person. Not to make things, you know, this is just ancient Greece. That's how they did everything. We had a personification of a god or a person, and then we had some water element or some mountain or some rock named after them. So Erechtheus is both a king and a river. It's okay. It's okay. So now to really, really put the final nail in the coffin, this is what Plato says in regards to the war. This I infer because Solon said that the priests in their narrative of that war mentioned most the names such as Cacropa, Erechtheus, Erechthonius, and Aristocon. So right there, Plato's saying that the names of the people in the war were Cacropa, and Erechtheus, and Erechthonius, and Aristocon. So we have a single day and night of misfortune where Cacropa was in rule that flooded the Attican plain. We have a single day and night of misfortune that wiped out all of the warlike men, but it was the third before the great flood of Deucalion. As a reminder, Erechtheus was not only the river that was formed by once Poseidon struck the Acropolis, and the name of the child that was born from Gaia and Hephaestus, after Hephaestus tried to embrace Athena and released his seed on her leg. She wiped it off with a wool cloth and threw it down to earth, impregnating Gaia. 
Athena felt somewhat responsible for this child, and she actually gave Erechtheus to Cecropa's daughter, Pandrosus, to raise. We could also look at this story metaphorically, and we can say that the sons of Poseidon, aka the Atlanteans, endeavored to conquer and subdue Cecropia, aka the sons of Athena, and when the sons of Athena beat the sons of Poseidon, Poseidon flooded the lands of the son of Athena. But what would cause a flash flood after a single day and night of rain? A hurricane could do it, but I don't think that the storms would make it to the Mediterranean Sea. I've never seen of a hurricane going to the Mediterranean Sea. But I also look at all the other natural disasters that are happening. We have these massive floods that happened in Iran. We have tsunamis that have hit. There's of course earthquakes. And Poseidon is known as driving his chariot on the floor of the sea. He's not known for causing rain. That's Zeus's territory. So whenever Poseidon floods something, he's flooding it with tsunamis. So now I have another burning question. When did the flood of Deucalion take place? There is a piece of marble that is named the Parian Marble, and it's an inscription of a chronological events inscribed on marble stele that's covering more than 12 centuries of ancient Greek history. Focusing a lot on the events linked with the city-state of Athens, this chronicle presents us with a timeline for the years 1582 BCE to 299 BCE. The stele starts out in 1581 BCE when Cecropa becomes the king of Athens. The next line states that in 1528 BCE the great flood of Deucalion occurred. Then in 1520 BCE the Greeks were renamed as the Hellenes. Because it was Deucalion and Pyra who had a son named Helen which lent his name to the Hellenes and to the Hellas. Then in 1294 BCE, King Minos rules Crete and King Aegeus rules Athens. In 1259 BCE, Theseus assumes the throne of Athens and in 1256 BCE, the Amazons invade Athens. Finally, in 1218 BCE, the War of Troy started and in 1209 BCE, Troy was conquered. It should be noted that most historians challenge this daily as being inaccurate and lacking some valuable information on other noteworthy kings. For example, the stele says that the Battle of Troy happened from 1218 BCE to 1209 BCE. However, archaeologists have determined that Troy 6 was destroyed around 1300 BCE and Troy 7 was destroyed around 1180 BCE. So what if this stele is off by 20 or 50 years? The layer that is now deemed Troy 6 is the layer that supposedly had these great walls. Remember, according to legend, Apollo and Poseidon made Zeus angry. They had to live as humans for a year and they went down to Troy to build Troy's infamous walls that were supposed to be 30 feet high and 10 feet thick. Well, on Troy 6, they actually found walls about that size, but again, that's at 1300 BCE. Troy 7 does not have those walls, and it was destroyed by fire around 1180 BCE. So we don't really know which layer Homeric Troy is. 
Of course, the exact date of the Flood of Deucalion is widely disputed, but most historians and scholars place the Flood between 1600 BCE and 1500 BCE. A 2022 reanalysis of radiocarbon data combined with stratigraphic data put the Thera explosion at approximately 1606 to 1589 BCE, with a 68.3 confidence interval. And of course, we have another one of 1609 to 1560 BCE with a 95.4 confidence interval. There's another stele from Egypt during the reign of Atmos I, who officially recorded to have reigned from 1550 to 1525 BCE. However, a medical examination of his mummy indicates that he died when he was about 35, supporting a 25-year reign if he came to the throne at the age of 10. The radiocarbon date range for the start of his reign is 1570 BCE to 1544 BCE. Additional scientific research published in 2018 also suggests the same correlation. So, without any further ado, here's what the stele says. The gods expressed their discontent. The gods made the sky come with a tempest of rain. It caused darkness in the western region. The sky was unleashed without more than the roar of a crowd. It was powerful. On the mountains, more than the turbulence of the cataract, which is at Elephantine, each house, each shelter, or each covered place that they reached were floating in the water like barks of papyrus. Of the royal residence for days, with no one able to light a torch anywhere. Then his majesty said, How these events have passed the power of the great God and the wills of the divinities. And his majesty descended in his boat, his council following him. The people were at the east and the west, silent, for they had no more clothes on them, after the power of the god was manifested. Then his majesty arrived in Thebes, the statue. It received what it had desired. His majesty set about to strengthen the two lands, to cause the water to evacuate without the aid of his men, to provide them with silver, with gold, with copper, with oil, with clothing, with all the products they desired. After which, his majesty rested in the palace. Life, health, strength. It was then that his majesty was informed that the funerary concessions had been invaded by the water, and that the sepulchral chambers had been damaged, and that the structures of funerary enclosures had been undermined, and that the pyramids had collapsed, and all that existed had been annihilated. His Majesty then ordered the repair of the chapels, which had fallen in ruins in all the country, restoration of the monuments of the gods, the re-erection of their precincts, the replacement of the sacred objects in the Room of Appearances, the reclosing of the secret place, the reintroduction into their Nioi of statues, which were lying on the ground the re-erection of the fire altars, the replacement of the offering tables back on their feet, to assure them provisions of offerings, the augmentation of the revenues of the personnel, the restoration of the country to its former state. They carried out everything, as the king had ordered it. I don't, I don't know about you, but that sounds an awful lot like a volcanic eruption 
and the dates are very close. Ten Minoan Linear A inscriptions have been found at the destruction layer at Thera. Five vases, two ostras, and three clay tablet fragments. The inscriptions are dated to around 1600 BCE. I have one more additional piece of information for you to help narrow down this date even more with this following quote. The Athenians said that the contest between Poseidon and Athena took place on the second month of the Bomadraeon, and hence they omitted that day from the calendar. According to Wikipedia, the Bomadrama was an ancient Greek festival held on Athens on the 7th of summer in honor of Apollo. The seventh day of every month was Apollo's birthday. Wouldn't it be nice to get presents every month? Anyway, they did a lot of celebration for the gods at this time. So this contest happened on the second month of summer. I can see these two pieces combining the information to make the second month of summer when the contest took place. For now, I feel really good about this date and the evidence presented so I'm going to hold on to the date for the Atlantean War to be around 1550 BCE, give or take 20 years. Not only does it feel scientifically sound, but of course, the best gauge of truthfulness is my gut. Thank you so much for continuing to listen. Your support means everything to me. If you want to help make this podcast grow, please subscribe and tell just one other person about this podcast today. We are each our own hero in this story we call life. That means one person has the power to change everything. Who is the one person you tell today, hero? Let's help keep Atlantis alive, or at least reimagined. A new episode will be released every Thursday at 9pm. See you then. Wait, are you still here? Thank you. It's appreciated. Here's a clip for next week's episode. Eventually, Phaethon finds Helios and asks him, Helios, my father, if to use that name thou'st given me, leave, and Clymene spoke truth and hides no guilt, give proof that all may know I am thy son indeed and forever in the doubt that grieves me. Then his father laid aside the dazzling gleams that crowned his head and bade him come and held him to his heart. Well, you deserve to be my son, he said. Truly, your mother named your lineage, and to dispel all doubt, ask what you will, that I may satisfy your heart's desire. And that dark marsh, the river sticks, by which the gods make oath, though to my eyes unknown, shall steal my troth. He scarce had ended when the boy declared his wish, his father's chariot for one day, with license to control those soaring seeds. Grief and remorse flooded his father's soul.